Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report, and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Waj Khan, Nikkei Asia's digital editor here in New York City. Today's episode, The War Comes to Asia. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not only brutal and destructive in itself, but it has triggered massive global fallout. The war has come to Asia in the form of a refugee crisis. Western-led sanctions against Russian companies and oligarchs, Moscow's countermeasures such as shuttering its airspace, international companies taking radical decisions to sever their Russia links, and more. The final impact of all of this is still unpredictable, but it's already looking like it will be big and could lead to a permanent reshaping of the world's political and economic maps. Thus, Asian countries are facing a major decision over which direction to go in. Considering its actions, Russia has few vocal supporters. But China is sympathetic, and influential players like India don't want to alienate Moscow for specific realpolitik needs. Another group, which includes countries like Singapore, is worried about the implications for small state sovereignty. And yet others, like Japan, which are supporting the Western sanctions regime, have their own divergent interests, particularly at the corporate level. Today, we host our first Editor's Roundtable of the Year, bringing together our most seasoned journalists to understand the political, economic, diplomatic and tech impact that the war is having. Yes, the war is in Ukraine, but it's not just coming to Asia, it's already there. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. Now joining me in the studio to kick off our discussion is Asia Stream correspondent, Monica Hunter-Hart. Monica, welcome back from your holiday. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, what do we need to know about this particular subject? So the editor's roundtable that's coming up next is going to cover a lot more ground. I'm just going to give you a brief idea of what's happening in three places that I think are particularly interesting. All right. Sounds good. Hit me. First off, it's been pretty fascinating watching India try to navigate this crisis. Delhi has close ties to Moscow that go back to the 50s. Mm -hmm. Russia doesn't trade much with India overall. India exports just $2.6 to Russia compared to $50 billion to the U.S. Mm -hmm. But it is an important supplier of weapons to India. And through India's many wars and skirmishes, Russia has been a reliable defense partner for Delhi. As tensions continue in India's rough neighborhood with China to the north and Pakistan to the west, Delhi sees a defense partnership with Russia as more important than siding with its friends in the West. It can't afford to alienate Russia, but it also can't afford to alienate the U.S., so it's been wobbling on a kind of neutrality tightrope, trying not to anger any party much. It's abstained from U.N. resolutions and hasn't condemned Russia publicly. Right. But, of course, the West doesn't see all of this as exactly neutral. Definitely not. Plus, at the moment, India is trying to find a way to get around Western sanctions so that it can keep importing Russian energy and other goods. The West has banned many Russian banks from using the SWIFT international payment system, hmm. which enables cross-border payments. But according to a report in the FT on Thursday, India is trying to circumvent that. It wants to create a local currency arrangement that will allow it to trade rupees for rubles directly, rather than going through the banned systems. That's quite a slick maneuver, isn't it? And yes, I seem to remember that India used a similar mechanism uh, with Iran in the past to evade uh, Western sanctions. 
That's right. Speaking of Iran, Tehran is being courted as a possible substitute for Russian oil exports. The U.S., EU, and U.N. Security Council Permanent Five are trying to restore a version of the 2015 nuclear deal to allow that to happen. Hmm. Trading sanctions against uh, one authoritarian regime for another. That's how the U.S. sees it, yes. Of course, Russia is a member of the U.N. Security Council's Permanent Five. And earlier this month, talks stalled when it stepped in with its own demands. It was trying to create a sanctions loophole. But negotiations finally seem to be gathering momentum again. Reports indicate that Russia has walked back its demands a bit. Now it just wants a guarantee that it can continue to do some of the nuclear collaboration with Iran that it was mandated to do under the 2015 deal. Got it. And who else is on your list? Pakistan, which is a new pro-Russia country, but an old pro-China hand. Hmm. I mentioned China because it's one of Moscow's most significant partners right now. Like India and Iran, Pakistan has abstained from UN resolutions condemning the invasion. Being pro-Moscow is kind of a new gig for Pakistan, which Mm. took on Russia throughout the Cold War and fought the Soviet Red Army through a vicious proxy war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. But now Islamabad finds itself as a China-backed Russian ally. Mm. This is problematic, as Pakistan is usually almost always broke and depends heavily on the U.S.-influenced IMF. Right. Further complicating things is that Pakistan is also in the midst of some political turmoil. On March 28th, its National Assembly will vote on a new confidence measure directed at Prime Minister Imran Khan. But Pakistan is always in political turmoil, Uh, Monica. But is Imran Khan going to be paying the price of being in Moscow, hanging out with Putin, uh, literally on the day of the invasion when uh, Russian tanks were crossing the Ukrainian border? That definitely wasn't a good look, but we can't say if that's what the opposition wants to force him out for. Still, it is true, Waj, that the Pakistani opposition has some long-standing pro-Washington ties and connections, and Khan doesn't. Got it. Well, thank you, Monica, as always, for your insight. Perhaps Pakistan might have a not-so-pro-Russia government the next time you're back on Asia Stream. Could be, Waj. We will be watching that space. We certainly will. Now, here at Nikkei Asia, our editors have been working round the clock, keeping track of how every development in this crisis affects the Indo-Pacific. So, we decided the best way to give you a snapshot of the war's Asia impact was to bring together a few of those editors in conversation together. It was a little tricky because they're all in Tokyo and I'm here in New York, but we finally ended up doing exactly that. And now we're going to share that roundtable discussion with you. Here it is. Hello to one and all, and thank you for joining us. I'm here with the three of Nikkei Asia's stalwart editors, three Brits in Tokyo. First off, we have Michael Peel, who is our executive editor, a journalist from our affiliate, The Financial Times. He's now in Tokyo, but has previously reported from the likes of Brussels, Bangkok, Abu Dhabi, and Lagos. Uh, Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Baj. Thank you very much. All right. And we have uh, Stephen Foley, our business editor, who, like Michael, is on secondment from the FT, where he was deputy U.S. news editor. Prior to the FT, he was a reporter at The Independent, and uh, he's a fresh off the boat arrival in Tokyo and has left some pretty big shoes to fill in the New York bureau where we miss him. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Baj. All right. And last but certainly not least... uh, my uh, brother-in-arms when it comes to uh, cricket commentary uh, across the high seas is Andy Sharp, our deputy editor who joined Nikkei Asia nearly four years ago after a long stint at Bloomberg in Tokyo and other esteemed Japanese publications. Welcome, Andy. Good morning, Watch. All right. Okay, so um, 
We're hoping that this conversation will help listeners understand and get at least a broad overview of how the Ukraine crisis has affected Asia at this point, three weeks into the conflict. So without much further ado, I'm going to jump in and let's start with you, Michael, if I may. Can you please run us through broadly uh, with the lay of the land when it comes to the war's impact uh, on Asia, from the politics to the economics, to the business, to the diplomacy bits, and perhaps briefly talk us through the major issues in Asia that are being shaped by the war and how much of the war's fallout uh, should we expect to land in Asia? Thanks, Waj. And yes, and you, you put your finger on it here that, that Russia's invasion is, is not only brutal and destructive in itself and obviously a, uh, enormously um, destabilizing for Europe, but it has triggered this massive global fallout. And uh, obviously, Asia as um, an economic powerhouse and the world's most populous region is uh, front and center of that. And the impacts range from the knock-on effects of the, the Western-led uh, sanctions against uh, Russian companies and oligarchs and different Asian countries and companies making decisions about whether to go along with these or not, to um, disruptions to supply chains of um, previously obscure elements, uh, metals and gas that are crucial for key global industries like semiconductors where production comes from Russia and Ukraine and is being disrupted or could be disrupted. And the political impact is huge, ranging from the very biggest countries. You know, China has uh, this uh, increasingly close relationship with Russia under Presidents Xi and Putin. And, you know, which way is China going to go? And uh, you know, clearly there are uh, decisions being made in Beijing about the extent to which Russia should be backed or not. And then the fallout ranges right down to the, the smallest countries, the Singapore Prime Minister, for example, raising concerns about the impact of this invasion on other small states around the world and their sovereignty. The final impact of all of this is, is big and still unpredictable, and it, it could lead to a permanent reshaping of the world's uh, political and economic map, including in Asia. Right. Now, um, speaking of um, um, other countries, um, Andy, um, this one's coming your way because some countries have unequivocally denounced uh, President Putin's invasion. Others have seemed to offer some sort of tacit support and some are somewhere in the middle. But let's focus on the biggest one of them all. Let's focus on China. Uh, now, in recent days, we saw reports of U.S. officials saying that Russia has asked China for military support in Ukraine. Do you think China will actually go this far? It's a very big question, Watch, and obviously we don't have all the answers. But let's look back to February the 4th, when um, Putin visited Beijing for the Winter Olympics opening ceremony. And he came back to Moscow with a 15-page joint agreement with, with China. You know, this agreement was affirming a no limits partnership between Russia and China, something that, you know, some observers said closely resembled a new alliance. I mean, the document harmonized the country's two positions on issues such as Taiwan and NATO expansion, obviously something that has come into play in, in recent weeks. But it's not clear what uh, Putin told Xi during or after their meeting. 
nor whether she was expecting any attack at all, let alone one of the scale, the devastation that uh, Russia ha had planned. Hmm. So China seems to be shocked by the carnage taking place in Ukraine. But at first it kind of played along with, with Russia, refusing to use the word invasion. But that language has changed in recent days with Xi referring to the conflict as a war. Hmm. But as you say, these reports about China being approached by Russia to supply arms, um, we don't know whether this is true. Obviously, the US has its own intentions with leaking this um, information. Both countries deny. But I mean, if they do, obviously, this creates a whole, this puts the war on a whole new scale. Hmm. Um, but it also, within you know the CCP, within the Chinese Communist Party, it raises the question of how far Beijing can go with this no limits partnership. Um, I mean, were China to aid Russia, the consequences would be breathtaking. I mean, not since Vietnam hmm. have, uh, have the US and China been on opposite sides of a proxy war. Um, but, you know, Beijing is seems to be outside of its uh, comfort zone right now, finding its position increasingly untenable. Um, and by not making a choice, it's seen by the West as making a choice on the Ukraine war. So there's going to be some inevitable collateral damage. Hold on to uh, that argument for a bit, Andy, because uh, I'm going to pivot to um, Stephen, because the last time he was on this podcast, we were talking about the supply chain disruptions last winter. Moving on, um, uh, Stephen, if uh, this one's for you, I'm taking you back to uh, supply chains one more time. And if things keep going the way that where they're going, you think we'll get parts for uh, the, the parts we need for our factories, the materials we need for uh, chip making, the energy we need to heat our homes. I mean, we keep on hearing about the glitches in the supply chain system, right? Ranging from the conflict itself to the sanctions to flight restrictions. But I'm hoping you can expand on the larger scale effects of supply chain disruptions for us. Oh, yes. Well, well you're absolutely right. It's popping up in all sorts of places. I mean, I think one of the hardest jobs last year was being a procurement manager for, uh, for, for tech companies, industrial companies, There's shortages all over the place, particularly in, uh, in chips. And if, uh, if those procurement managers thought they were going to have an easier year this year, that is not turning out to be the case. We're discovering all sorts of, um, all sorts of materials where, where Russia and Ukraine are, are very big and important suppliers to the, uh, to, to the global system from, uh, from, from obviously very staple commodities such as, uh, such as wheat, which, uh, which, which threatens to push up food prices uh, everywhere to industrial gases, um, things like neon. I don't think there were a lot of people who knew until uh, un until the invasion that the Ukraine was uh, responsible for 70% of the, of the world's supplies of neon. These are materials that are important in, in chip making. So yet again, the, the, the center of uh, uh, the, the center of these uh, supply chain glitches. Uh, I do think there's um, there's there's two separate questions, right? There's the there's the supplies themselves that come out of Russia and uh, and Ukraine, um, which will uh, be disrupted in the short term. There's, there's there's ports that can't be used as easily, uh, and there's obviously sanctions, uh, mounting sanctions every day. New sanctions on uh, on the use of, uh, of products from from Russia, and then there's 
the the wider question of prices. You've seen a very dramatic increase in prices of industrial metals, aluminum, nickel, all sorts of uh, things uh, like that because of temporary factors actually um, uh, the, uh, the the prices have been driven up by, by 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 speculators by short squeezes and the real question I think that we have to follow in the uh, in the, in the coming months is what is the real supply dis, uh, disruption versus what are the uh, the, the, the price implications? Um, and whether these prices are coming back down, you're seeing it in the price of uh, oil, which looks like an alpine skyline. You know, it's shot up um, a week and a half ago, but it's come back down below $100 uh, a barrel now. As people uh, people understand that the system is going to knit back together in a slightly different way, we may have we may have sanctions on Russia, but there are ways to get commodities out into uh, into the system. There are other suppliers. Just in the example of Neon, for example, mm. our chip, our semiconductor reporters have been talking to uh, to uh, the chip makers who tell them they have six months of uh, stockpiles, for, for for example, and are now using that time to look for alternative uh, alternative supplies. So these things can knit back together at some point. Um, without uh, perhaps without Russia in the uh, in in the supply chain, but uh, there's no doubt at all that it's a headache for uh, for, for companies and uh, another 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 factor in inflation this year. Right. So I'm looking forward to other supply chain articles from your desk, uh, Stephen. But let's get back to geopolitics uh, uh, quickly and uh, back to China and you, uh, Michael Peel. Now, I know uh, you took an interest in our latest uh, big story, which is Nikkei Asia's cover story this week, which was uh, interestingly titled uh, Player or Played, Xi-Putin Alliance Faces Defining Moment in Ukraine. The title is a tad long for my taste, but very explanatory. Uh, but uh, uh, more importantly than what I think of the title, uh, Michael, is that there's a vivid line in there, which I thought uh, uh, I must ask you to expand on. Uh, and I quote, the invasion appeared to cast China in a new role as Russia's enabler. Xi's fingerprints were found at the crime scene. So to what extent do you think that uh, President Xi can be blamed for enabling President Putin? Yes, that was indeed a very vivid line, Wash, and it it really gets to the heart of of I guess two sort of competing um, um, and and perhaps sort of contradictory trends that have really come to a head in this crisis. One is the idea um, that you know, China and Russia, and particularly and more widely autocratic states around the world, are natural allies, you know, against. Mm. Um, for example, Western powers or, or democracies in, in, in other regions of the world. And there's, there's obviously something to that. There obviously is a kind of um, sympathy between um, Putin and Xi, which is, is, is quite personal. And, um, and they've both talked about, you know, spending time together and, uh, you know, celebrating uh, Putin's birthday together with, with sausage and, and vodka uh, mm. on, on occasion at one, uh, at one summit. Um, so there's clearly something to that. But on the other hand, what what this crisis has shown is that the interests of Russia and China 
are far from totally aligned. Um, and this is, in one sense, a historically very obvious point. You know, these are two countries which, two massive countries, um, which have had very difficult relations at, uh, at times over over the last uh, century plus, and uh, uh, and, and there have been tensions as much as as cooperations characterizing that that relationship. But more specifically now, um, China is in this bind that um, it wants to present the image of itself as a. Uh, a world power, a reasonable power, a constructive power. Now, we can, of course, debate the extent to which that image is true in reality, but that's the image it wants to project. So the idea that it is assisting a country which has openly invaded a neighbor and is bombing cities and driving millions of people to flee and causing massive civilian casualties, that's not an image that China wants to project. Also, on a political level, Essentially, Russia is now um, hugely alienated from the European Union, um, and that that is a decision that uh, the Putin uh, regime has has taken to basically shoulder the fact that a lot of these ties um, that that have grown between Russia and the EU will will now be severed or at least badly damaged. China doesn't necessarily want that. China doesn't have any great love for the European Union, perhaps, but um, it's sees it as a useful partner, obviously in trade, but potentially in other areas such as climate. And of course, EU-China relations, if they're reasonable, they help give credibility to you know, the idea of China as a constructive world power, which it, it wants to project. So for all of those reasons, um, th th this does create this, this, this real dilemma in Beijing. And I think, you know, we can see as as uh, Andy in particular has outlined that, that, that there's obviously an internal debate going on in Beijing. It's obviously very opaque and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say with any authority exactly what's happening or how it will end up. But Putin really has kind of um, uh, put um, forced a decision essentially in Beijing of how it treats this um, no what was said to be a no limits partnership. Well, that sounds quite a long time ago. The idea of a no limits partnership, because essentially the question being posed by Russia's invasion to Beijing is: Are there in fact limits to this partnership? It does seem quite a long time ago. But um, coming back and circling back to uh, the rest of Asia as well, which shouldn't be forgotten, China. China, of course, takes up most of the most of the space in the room. But um, Andy, this one's for you. How's the rest of Asia reacting? And because there's clearly there's other players in the region. There's Japan, which is of course pretty gung ho from what one sees. Pretty gung ho about following the sanctions regime. Uh, they they're even letting in um, uh, refugees right now, which is, which is not very in character with uh, Tokyo's decades long policies. There's India, uh, which uh, seemingly isn't too gung ho about, uh, following, uh, the rest of, uh, well, many other democratic countries. Uh, there's, uh, there's the ASEAN nations. Some of them seem to be sitting this one out. Could you detail the, uh, the highlights, um, uh, across the rest of Asia? So if I might go more closer to home, to Tokyo, um, one thing that's come up out of this crisis, um, and it was a very, very interesting comment by former Prime Minister um, Abe, um, just four days after the invasion began, 
That being said, it's only natural for Japan to discuss the possibility of nuclear sharing with the US.、Mm. Um, it's being widely discussed within the government. And this naturally is、um, annoying China.、Um, so, be interesting to see how this develops over the next decade or so in Japan. Jokowi, the uh, Indonesian um, president, in a recent interview with Nikkei, said you know, he called for a ceasefire. He's pushing quite strongly. But、mm-hmm. other countries, such as Cambodia, which is obviously closely linked to the、um, government in Beijing, has been sitting on its hands. And Cambodia is important this year because it's the,、um, the chair of ASEAN. Right. Now,、uh, Stephen, it's not just governments、uh, which are adjusting to the war, right? Private companies、uh, who do business with Russia are also facing the larger question about whether or not to continue. Now, some of them are, are just leaving in what is being called、uh, as the great escape from Russia. But could you give us an overview of how corporate Asia has? Been responding to this crisis and help me understand、uh, why Asian companies have been, from what I'm gathering, a tad slower to halt their operations in Russia compared to their Western counterparts. I think you're right to identify that as a broad,、uh, broad characterization, yes. And,、uh, and, and when、uh, companies have pulled out too, there's been a,、um, a somewhat、uh, noticeable difference in.、Um, Tone or explanation as well. You have when,、uh, when, when Western companies who've jumped in to say they are,、um, they are shutting up shop in, in Russia, like,、uh, like Nike and Apple, their statements have、uh, typically included、uh, a, a pretty full throated、uh, denunciation of,、uh, of Russia's actions. Um, that's,、uh, there's, there's, there's been perhaps slightly more cautious、uh, statements from, from Asian companies. And as, as,、uh, as you say, they have been slower to act. You've had、uh, you know, energy companies such as、uh, Shell and、uh, Exxon in, uh, in, from, from Europe、um, saying they're going to sell out of joint ventures that they have with,、uh, with, with Russian energy companies. Um, you have,、um, I mean, just a very clear example in the Sakhalin、uh, oil and gas fields, which,、uh, which Exxon and Shell are、uh, major partners in. You also have Japanese、uh, minority partners in there, such as Mitsui and、uh, Mitsubishi, and they, they are not making the same、uh, pledges to pull out of,、uh, of those、uh, joint ventures.、Uh, the, uh, the, the, the experts that we've had have said people are taking their cue from. Uh, from governments and the sort of the vociferousness of the,、uh, of the government's um, uh, sanctions. Um, and Prime Minister Kishida here in、uh, Japan has,、uh, has, has um, made, the, made the argument that just,、uh, just dumping these stakes doesn't necessarily,、uh, doesn't necessarily harm Russia. It will harm yourself in the sense that it makes it harder to,、uh, to pull in energy into,、uh, in, into Japan.、Uh, it might leave these stakes open to be snapped up by.、Uh, But by China, so no one wins that way. You've had U turns though from a company like、uh, Uniqlo, its uh, outspoken um, uh, uh, boss was saying that Russians uh, have a right to 
live as we do. Clothing is a necessity of life. He was very um, vociferous in an interview with Nikkei uh, about 10 days ago, saying he was going to stay the course in Russia, keep the shops open there. Uh, but a few days later, there was, uh, after, after a lot of um, consumer anger on, uh, on the internet, so that, that was reverse course. But it wasn't, uh, the, the, the reversal wasn't described as a response to, the, uh, to, to public pressure. It was described as uh, operationally, there are problems that uh, make it hard to operate in, uh, in, in Russia. Right. Stephen, real quickly, I'd like to follow up. This sort of reminds me of some of the foot dragging uh, or uh, uh, counter arguments uh, conducted last year and the year before that by certain companies, many of them in Japan, when the whole decoupling debate with uh, China had kicked off. And I remember Nikkei Asia doing a story or a series of stories, actually, about how uh, many were arguing that this is easier said than done and it will hurt, uh, it could hurt uh, the economies of uh, the countries. Does it remind you of that uh, turn of events then? Oh, very much so. And there's a, uh, there is a sort of a technology decoupling aspect to this too, is the US is, uh, has, has put together uh, a new, a new round of, uh, of, of technology sanctions on Russia as well, um, saying that uh, US, um, US uh, design technology cannot be used, cannot be sold to uh, Russia. Uh, that is causing a lot of consternation at this point amongst uh, amongst tech companies who have to uh, have to go through and try and work out the letter of the uh, of the new uh, U- U.S. law. So uh, there will be um, some difficulty in pulling apart these tech supply chains. It's uh, it's a, it's an incredibly integrated uh, world. So it's easier said than uh, than done. Right. And uh, Michael Peel, on to you. Considering. Um, of all the places I mentioned at the top, you've also uh, reported from Syria. So um, I'd like to pick your brains about this one, that it seems there are things we can learn here from the Russia-Syria experience, because that conflict gave us a taste of modern Russian aggression. Um, We saw uh, the droves of refugees uh, flooding into Europe. We saw those airstrikes. We saw the willingness to work Uh, with, uh, well, unsavory characters and governments. What examples do you think uh, Russia's experience in Syria can teach us right now about this conflict? Yes, thank you for the question, Wise, which I think is a very uh, pertinent one. And and, and I would just expand it a little and say that, you know, Syria brings both parallels and contrasts, which are actually quite striking. Now, to start with Russia, um, the subject of your question, I reported from Syria in the, in the early years of, of, of the conflict there, um, when uh, before Russia had intervened. But what was very clear was that the strategies that the Assad regime was using um, were very similar to um, the, some of the strategies we see um, today in, in Ukraine. And in other words, um, missile strikes on residential areas, um, certainly no effort to uh, spare civilian lives and a lot of evidence that civilians were actually being targeted in uh, in, in some cases. Um, and Russia in 2015, um, got involved and came on board with that strategy and was basically an accessory, uh, has been an accessory of the Assad regime's uh, brutal crackdown ever since in the name of of combating terrorism. Um, And, you know, has with some success, like the Assad regime, um, 
framed the Syrian war as a battle by the Assad regime against terrorists, when, of course, um, there is so much more to it than that. Um, and there was a very strong uh, opposition in Syria, um, which um, was mainly concerned with the repression of the Assad regime. And they've been kind of written out of the story, written out of the narrative, and Russia has been um, a big part of this this brutal war over over the past many years now, um, and of course other um, reporters who've, who've covered uh, Chechnya um, have also been struck by you know the, the scorched earth approach that uh, Russia took there and the amount of devastation um, that it inflicted there. And as 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 one BBC reporter said, well, if 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 you're surprised by Russia's tactics in Ukraine, you haven't been watching what it's been up to over the past you know, 20, 20 years or so. The right. other point that I wanted to raise from, from what you said, uh, which is related to Syria, is, is a very different point, and it's about the reaction to refugees. Um, we see these uh, heartwarming, life-affirming stories, indeed, of European countries um, opening their door to Ukrainian refugees in, in large numbers, both at a governmental level and at a personal level, people turning up in, in train stations in, in Germany, offering uh, uh, refugees uh, um, um, uh, a place to stay and, and, and food and, and, and so on. Um, and, and, and this is wonderful. And, and there have been many pieces written about how wonderful this is. But it's impossible not to be struck by the contrast with the reaction of some of these very same European countries that are so welcoming to Ukrainian refugees now, Poland is one example, to how hostile they were to refugees from other conflicts, including Syria, but also uh, including other conflicts such as Afghanistan. And I think that, um, you know, while we should all be very inspired by um, the, uh, the way that Europe has reacted to um, Ukrainian refugees. This is also a moment to reflect on the contrast and uh, with previous uh, uh, people fleeing, the reaction to people fleeing previous conflicts and to ask the question, why should that be? Wow, indeed. And uh, on to you, Andy Sharp. Uh, we're nearing the end here. Uh, but um, before we go, let's... Um, try to grasp the bigger picture really quickly. Um, now, it's been three weeks, um, and the war has already seen, has witnessed a, a shift in, uh, somewhat of a shift in the global alliance system. Um, we've seen uh, NATO be, being strengthened. Uh, it's uh, coming back together when a lot of people had sort of written it off. There's also talk now of a new alliance, perhaps an Indo-Pacific version of NATO or an expansion of the Quad. So um, how do you see uh, the, the security infrastructure, uh, the security systems in the Indo-Pacific, uh, in the alliance structures, etc., particularly among democracies? How do you see that changing, if at all? Okay, I think we start with um, one very important piece of news that uh, went under the radar because of the the, the war in Ukraine, which was um, South Korea um, got itself a new uh, president last Wednesday, Yoon Suk-yul, a conservative uh, former prosecutor. Um, so he has talked quite openly about getting involved with the Quad in some way um, over the next uh, few years, obviously not joining immediately, but there's talk of him joining a quad meeting in Tokyo in May. 
bringing South Korea into the so-called Quad uh, Alliance or whatever we call it um, would certainly strengthen it given that it's a neighboring country of China and has huge um, business interests in, in China. Plus another thing we need to cast our, our eye on is the Philippine election in, in May. It looks like Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the former dictator, will win the uh, election. We've obviously, it's Philippine politics, it could go any way, but it, this does look like the most likely scenario. And he's more likely, I believe, to stick with Duterte's kind of um, ambivalent stance towards the, the West, clearly looking more at China's business interests. So it's probably unlikely, although things can change quickly, that the Philippines will join any such uh, quad network. I think Japan's going to be pushing um, as well other nations in East Asia to, um, to join up. Right. And um, this is my last China question, I promise. There's been a, a lot of talk uh, about how not just after the war, but even during the war, even now, uh, Russia uh, is being pushed further because of NATO, uh, the international sanctions regime, etc. Russia is being pushed further into China's embrace. Stephen, I have a more specific question for you about that embrace. Will China Inc. move in to scoop up the market share from other companies which are now moving out of Russia? Oh, I, I think you're seeing it already. Watch, I, I think um, there's uh, there is this uh, there is this divergence. You have the Western companies uh, he heading out. Uh, you have uh, Chinese companies actually finding pressure to stay in. There was uh, an extraordinary situation of Didi, you know, the ride ride sharing um, business, which was in the process of um, of pulling out of uh, of, of Russia and. Um, uh, because it was seen as not being sufficiently uh, loyal to a, uh, a China ally, it faced a lot of pushback on social media, and in the end, it uh, it it it, it cancelled its pullout from Russia. So it, it remains there, uh, and there's obviously a very big opportunity for uh, for China's smartphone makers in uh, in Russia as uh, as well as uh, as Western companies like uh, Apple pull out and Samsung pull out. I, th I think there's a bigger picture question, however, when it comes to the the, chi the China um, um, situation, and that is the financial question, the question about China's role in the financial system. What this um, uh, what this situation has revealed uh, yet again is just how powerful U.S.-led sanctions can be. Uh, when the U.S. can can galvanize the international community uh, through the SWIFT system that is internationally owned, through the through the dollar system, the fact that so much international trade goes through dollars, uh, the U.S. is able to impose sanctions far beyond uh, its uh, its 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 borders. And the question I think for China is, uh, and for and for uh, businesses and uh, financial businesses outside of the the U.S. is whether they knit together a new financial system that cuts the dollar out, uh, a China-based financial system, uh, so that it's a fail-safe, so, uh, so that the West cannot cut, uh, 
cut you out in the way that they are very successfully doing with Russia at the moment. And if and if a new Renimbi-based financial system starts to emerge, then that bigger than anything is is China's great opportunity here. Right. And Stephen, before I let you go, thirty seconds, please, for our listeners about what they need to know about Asian businesses in the wake of this war? Well, I think the open, the open question is, uh, is, is, which, way is uh, which way is China going to jump ultimately? Is it going to seize this opportunity to open bilateral trade, to be a, uh, to be a conduit around Western sanctions, or is it going to uh, is is it going to encourage its businesses to fall in line um, and to keep using the dollar system and to um, uh, and to allow Russia to be uh, sidelined from the from the global system? Right, Andy Sharp, thirty seconds for you, sir. Uh, what do our listeners need to know uh, about the evolving political landscape in Asia? in the wake of this war? Um, yeah, it's a question being asked in every single parliament right now, the response to the crisis, how to handle refugees, the economic fallout, energy is a massive issue for every single government in, in Asia, plus the rising cost of living. So it's, uh, it's broad, it touches every base. Michael Peel, 30 seconds for you. Uh, what do Nikkei Asia readers and Asia Stream listeners need to know about the bigger picture evolving, the fallout of this war. How far, how long will it be felt for? I would say for a very long time. And I would also say that um, apart from the obvious effects um, that we have spent much of this podcast talking about, there are also going to be all sorts of um, effects that just aren't obvious at all aren't clear and will be completely unexpected. And so expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. Michael Peel, Andy Sharp, Stephen Foley from Tokyo. The editor's roundtable is complete. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Please stay safe. I've heard there was an earthquake there earlier today. I hope everybody's safe and sound. And thank you for joining the roundtable. Thanks very much. Thanks much. Thank you. Now, we did briefly mention the important issue of refugees, but let's dive deeper. Over 3 million people have fled Ukraine at this point in what is the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Many of them are headed west, but some are coming to Asia. How is Japan, which has for decades not been very open to immigrants, asylum seekers and refugees, dealing with with this influx. With her ear close to the ground and her finger on the pulse of the big story, here is Nikkei Asia Deputy Editor Alice French with the Tokyo Dispatch. Konnichiwa and welcome to the Tokyo Dispatch, where I'll be sending regular updates from the narrow streets and neon lights of Tokyo, home to Nikkei HQ and hub for our East Asia coverage. As the war in Ukraine rages on, there have been some signs of hope amongst the despair in the form of displays of solidarity with the people of Ukraine in many Asian nations. One story that particularly caught my eye this week was Japan's opening of their borders to Ukrainian refugees, which was covered by Shinsuke Shigeta from our Tokyo newsroom. The news was a pretty big deal, considering Japan has not historically been the most welcoming to refugees. 
The country admitted only 1.19% of the nearly 4,000 people who applied for asylum here in 2020, and just 0.42% the year before. Compared to countries such as the UK and Canada, whose refugee acceptance rates lie at around 50%, that's a minuscule proportion. But current Prime Minister Kishida seems keen to rebrand Japan as a haven for refugees fleeing the Russian invasion. He announced on the 2nd of March that the country would start offering asylum to Ukrainian citizens with family or friends in Japan and also promised to increase the amount of humanitarian aid provided to Ukraine. As of the 16th of March, only around 30 Ukrainian refugees have actually been let into Japan. So Japan's contribution is still just a drop in the ocean. But considering the island nation's track record of generally keeping itself to itself, particularly off the back of almost two years' worth of strict border restrictions throughout the pandemic, Japan's acceptance of refugees is a significant sign of their commitment to supporting the people of Ukraine through this conflict. And it's a commitment that's felt on the ground here in Tokyo too. On the 5th of March, Tokyo's Shibuya Square was filled with over 4,000 protesters taking part in the Support Ukraine Freedom March, which was organized online by the NGO Stand with Ukraine Japan. It was quite the sight seeing Shibuya's famous crossroads turn into a sea of blue and yellow as Japanese, Ukrainians and foreign expats alike wielded Ukrainian flags, banners and placards. This week, I spoke with Sasha, a Ukrainian national from Kharkiv living in Japan, who is one of Stand with Ukraine's founders and an organizer of the march. She told me she was amazed by the turnout. The Japan people's support was incredible. There were a lot of people who wanted to join and we, of course, you know, we couldn't do anything just by ourselves. So we welcome all the help and all the contributions. We published a group forum where we asked the people who wanted to be volunteers to join mm-hmm. us. We got 150 applications and uh, around 100 of them actually helped us actively during the march. The huge show of solidarity with Ukraine was especially astonishing, given protests in Japan are usually few and far between. A culture of not wanting to stand out from the crowd, which is exemplified by the traditional Japanese saying that the nail that sticks out gets hammered down, combined with concerns about the impact a history of political activism could have on one's future job prospects here, has traditionally kept demonstrators off Japan's streets. I actually never expected Japan, Japanese people who, who are considered apolitical and like neutral who would take uh, Ukraine's side. Uh, I think the reason is that it's not only the problem of like, one country somewhere in Europe anymore, it's a problem of the whole world. It's a, it's a, it's a threat for all humanity, what's happening right now. And it's not just Japan's citizens that have been outraged into action. The last two weeks have seen similar demonstrations for Ukraine across Asia, from Bangkok to Seoul. The outpouring of support for Ukrainian civilians, even in countries so far geographically removed from the conflict, at least provides a small sliver of heartwarming news amidst the destruction. This is Alice French with the Tokyo Dispatch for Asia Stream. Mataraishu! That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in-depth coverage of the Ukraine conflict and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
Please share, subscribe and leave us a review and hopefully a five-star rating. And a reminder that Nikki Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Just type in the code ASIASTREAM, all caps, no spaces, at checkout when you visit asia.nikkei.com. This episode was produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Jack Stone Truett. I'm your host, Waj Khan. We'll go full stream ahead next week. <laughs>